We used to come here for school retreat. We would swim to that island every day. I love the water. We used to lie out on the sand and let the sun dry us and try to guess the names of the birds singing. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. Not like here. Here everything is soft and smooth. Welcome everyone from across the universe to the Wampa's Lair Podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampa's Lair Podcast. This is episode number 534, Underappreciated Prequel Trilogy Moments. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the Anakin Skywalker to my Obi-Wan Kenobi, we have Carl LeClaire. You're a Jedi, too? Pleased to meet you. <laughs> Love that line. <laughs> All Obi-Wan gets is a little grin and a handshake. <laughs> And he's he's so awkward with it. He's like, who's this kid? Why is he here? <laughs> <laughs> Why do I sense we've p- picked up another pathetic life form? It's the boy who helped us acquire the parts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Jason, I'm really excited to do this episode. Um, there, are, the the prequels are in and of themselves under, an underappreciated trilogy. Not here in the mm-hmm. Wampus Lair, of course. For for 12 years strong, we have done nothing but love on these movies, and we will continue to do these for another 12 years beyond. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, we thought it'd be fun just to do kind of a fun little. We each picked a moment from each of the three prequel movies that we feel like are a little bit underappreciated and underappreciated both from kind of just a general aspect, but also because we feel like they're actually quite impactful moments to the story at large. So that's kind of what we're going to get into on this week's episode, and I'm excited about it. Uh, But Jason, before we dive into our episode, just wanted to let folks know that we have a special December coming up. Now, granted, that's a couple weeks away. But we are very excited in light of the uh, writer and actor strike being settled in favor of the writers and actors. Praise the force. Uh, We are finally (laughs) going to do uh, a series on Ahsoka. Um, We know a lot of other folks uh, recorded their reaction episodes and waited to release them after the strike was settled. Totally cool on that. Um, obviously, there were several shows that chose to to record during the strike, regardless of what folks uh, asked for. Um, all that to say, we are excited to kind of go revisit the series. We did not record things as it was coming out uh, because I don't know how folks had time to record two episodes in a week. I, I just don't get it. But kudos no, to, to all of you who are able to do that. Good, good for you. Uh, that said, we felt like it'd be a fun opportunity to end the year by looking back on probably the most exciting star Wars entry this past year, which of course was the Ahsoka show. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we're going to do two episodes a week, starting the first week of December. And 
honestly, Jason, I'm kind of excited because we have that kind of advantage of they're not having to be straight reaction episodes. It kind of we get because we've seen the whole series now. We've we've right. lived with it for a couple of months. Um, so it'll be kind of fun to just go through each of the episodes as kind of a revisit. And we hope that you'll join us for that journey. Absolutely. It'll be it'll be a lot of fun to go back, uh, rewatch these with, you know, sort of eyes that, you know, having already seen it, having marinated on the series, uh, listened to other people's opinions um, and, and had some of these conversations in and of ourselves. Carl and I have talked about the show um, just <laughs> quite <off>. a bit. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. So <laughs> it'll be nice to actually be able to put some of these thoughts together uh, with you guys uh, and maybe you know, generate some new ones as we go back and revisit the episodes um, in December. So it'll be a lot of fun. We will be taking the last week of November off. Um, uh, so don't expect an episode then, but we'll be, we've got an episode for you this week, obviously, and next week, but we'll take off the first, the last week of November and first week of December, we'll start this. It'll be really fun. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and next week's episode I'm very excited for already too. We've got our our friend Steph coming back, uh, my my favorite Thrawn fan out there, and we are going to look at the iconic Legends novel Outbound Flight by Timothy Zahn. Yes. Uh, so yes. Uh, if you are an uh, uh, an Outbound Flight lover or a, a Legends lover, we hope you'll join us next week as well as as Steph comes back to to shine her blue light on all things Thrawn. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, like Kmart, she's got the blue light special, um, and it'll be all things Thrawn and Outbound Flight uh, next week as we uh, get ready for our Ahsoka discussion. Absolutely. So. Um, but Jason, without further ado, we've got some underappreciated prequel moments we want to talk through. Um, yeah, and I want to say real quick before yeah. we jump into it, this was hard um, because – there's there's scenes that uh, I feel like uh, that are, that I wanted to talk about, but I was like, wait a minute, no, we've talked about them several times. I know other people have talked about these, so I can't say they're underappreciated. I they might be things that I don't think maybe are appreciated as much as I think they should be, but they're not necessarily underappreciated. And so it was one of these difficult things going back and you know revisiting these movies trying to pick out scenes that we haven't really talked about on the show mm. that much that I think are important um and that I haven't really heard other people talk about that much either so it was a complicated approach for me personally the way I was looking <laughs> at it uh but I did find some theme uh some scenes that I think are really great. And I, I don't think we've ever actually really talked about, um, at least not in the way that I'm going to be approaching them uh, this time around. So I'm really excited about this. Uh, how did you approach coming to, to your picks? Um, I really like the way you picked those. Uh, I, I just thought of moments from each of the movies that are either kind of laughed off um, or, or, or just not talked about. Um, when, when, when we were talking about this last week, I was like, Hey, how about this for a fun topic? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I like it. And then you were like, can I guess two of yours? And you guessed them right away, <laughs> which, which was great. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, th I thought it was an opportunity to, to take some moments, um, 
and 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 think about them in a new way and honestly jason it was just an opportunity to talk some some prequel love which we are always anxious to do here at the wampus lair we are we are and and i think that's a great idea you know you know some scene some scenes that might get laughed at but like actually approach them kind of seriously not necessarily like serious and you know (laughs) unhumorously but like (laughs) you know there's actually good stuff in these scenes. Um, right. I think that's a, a good way to, uh, to bring some, a different thought to some of these perhaps uh, memeable moments, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, without further ado, Jason, I'm going to, I'm going to kick us off then uh, with, with Phantom Menace and the, the scene for me that I feel like is just not talked about enough and therefore underappreciated it's the scene with Jar Jar and Queen Amidala on Coruscant mm. before they decide to go back to Naboo. And Jar Jar comes up to, to Queen Amidala and says, you said people going to die? I hope not. Garnkins get pasted too, right? I hope not. <laughs> we said no dying without a fight. We said warriors. We said got a grand army. That's why you're not liking us, Misa T. <laughs> I love this little moment between the two of them because uh, I think it's it says a lot about both of their characters um, in this in this kind of moment. The queen is really despondent and despairing, right? She's come here to Coruscant to to rally support, to get some sort of action against this uh, this occupying trade federation force on her planet and nothing's happening. Right. The Senate hasn't agreed to help. Now they're going to go through this big clunky process of electing a new chancellor. She's just looking out that window despondent. Right. This just means the the longer the delay, the more of my people are going to die. And I think Mm -hmm. it's really telling that Jar Jar recognizes and empathizes with her plight. You know, uh, Jar Jar is is clearly kind of the the bumbling jokester, of course. And he's also a very compassionate character. I think that's uh-huh. what's so endearing about Jar Jar. And he he recognizes, without even having to say much, that he feels her pain. That he understands mm-hmm. what she's experiencing in this moment. And, and, and I love this Jar Jar moment because even though he's been rejected and, and cast out from his own society, he still has this tremendous respect and love for the people – uh, for the Gungan people, right? And mm-hmm. and I've always liked how he kind of thumps his chest when he says, Wisa got a grand army. And it's it's not this kind of uh, like egotistical, like, uh, oh, we're so big and bad and we're so, you know, we're, we're going to conquer everybody. It's just, it's, it's this tremendous pride he has in what his culture has, um, has raised up. And, and for him, mm-hmm. it's, that you know this army is is something that the Gungans take pride in. Um, mm-hmm. They're certainly not an aggressive people, but they also have this this army for defense. And and Jar Jar has the wherewithal, you know, as you quoted through this, you know, of that's why you know liking us, Misa thinks, right? The the mm-hmm. the people of Naboo, the 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 people who live in Feed and and the Naboo people pride themselves on being a pacifist society. Right. Um, so Georgia understands that that's probably one of the things you don't like about us is that we do have a standing army that we that we value it too, right? Um, mm-hmm. And in this moment, it's him empathizing with her, and also she hears Jar Jar mention that, and 
she's so open to it, kind of like outside thinking that she hears that and says, I've got an idea, right? Like right. It, yeah. it, it, it's Jar Jar's pride in his own people that gets uh, Padme. This is Padme um, mm-hmm. and Queen Amala. Right. They're one and the same. Uh, it, it gets her thinking. What? Yeah. What? I didn't know that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, but it gets her thinking outside the box. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just I really love this moment because it's it's kind of in this scene that that Padme understands that symbiosis that Obi-Wan tells Boss Nass about at the beginning of the movie. She understands how interconnected the people of Naboo are with the Gungans. And now she hears this kind of opportunity. And I don't think she sees it as like, oh, I can take advantage of them in their army, but rather we can do this together, right? And right. she immediately just formulates this plan of how to take her planet back. And she does that in light of Jar Jar's compassion and empathy. And I love that. Oh man, I love this scene too. And I, I love that you brought it up because obviously any excuse to talk about Jar Jar Binks is a fantastic excuse to me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you're right. He does have this, this, and I like how you pointed it out. Even though he's been banished from the society, that from his cities, from the, the, just the Gungan society in general, he still has great pride in where he came from and the culture he's from, uh, and everything like that. And, uh, enough to recognize that uh, something that they that they take great pride in and that, that they are able to uh, you know achieve might be a point of contention amongst you know the other people on the planet and amongst the Naboo and things like that. And he brings it to her, not in any sort of like, well, we're better than you mm-hmm. uh, because we have an army, and well, we wouldn't go without a fight. Uh, you know, unlike you, Naboo, who just capitulated, he doesn't say anything like that. You know, he's like, you know, we, you know, we have this to take care of our own. Um, and Padme hears that for what he means and is like, well, maybe we can all be together in this. Which might be the first time she as queen has ever had to address or deal with the idea of working with the Gungans at all. She's a very young queen. She's not been in office very long. Um, and so, you know, traveling with Jar Jar, with the Jedi, with Anakin has sort of really opened her eyes to things. And having this candid conversation, you know, he's, he's essentially an outcast from his culture. And she is the ruler of hers. And they're having a very candid and open conversation on, you know, in the office of a senator on a far off planet. That never happens. That would have never happened. He would have never gotten entrance to to the castle in Thede um, if he had tried to talk with her anywhere else. And yet here they are having a very candid conversation. And it provides an opportunity and sparks an idea and a plan in her that immediately becomes the only solution when Palpatine walks in and is like, well, the bureaucracy wheels are turning in our favor. Isn't that wonderful? Um, you know, mm-hmm. and she's like, yeah, great. Um, I'm going to go do something <laughs> meaningful yeah. and leaves. So uh, I love all of that. And I love the fact that, that, that you brought up this scene um, and the the fact that, not only does that spark, you know, the the uniting between 
Gungans and Naboo on Naboo. But it's also kind of like maybe what sparks her interest in having Jar Jar sort of help represent the Gungans, uh, you know, in a formal sense for the Naboo hmm. moving forward because he becomes a representative by Attack of the Clones. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's true. Um, but what what did you pick from Phantom Menace? Oh man, um, I picked the scene uh, right after. It's working! It's working! We we wiped to a starry filled night on the back patio of the slave hobbles, and uh, Qui Gon is cleaning up Anakin's cut, and Anakin is staring up into the stars, imagining, you know. Do they all have a system of planets? And I want to be the first one to see them all. And this is this is the innocence of Anakin. This is the the goodness and the innocence of Anakin that um, is is really fantastic and a really key part of his character. Um, and you know he he's like this. This is you know Anakin's looking away to the future for excitement and adventure that. Yoda talks about with, with Luke, um, you know, looking away to the future, to the horizon, never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. Maybe, maybe not, but he's also nine. Uh, and he has big dreams of seeing the universe and being the first person to be to all of the planets, uh, in, in the galaxy. Um, which number one is really fantastic that a boy who's a slave, has that kind of dream to not only leave the planet, but to be the first person to see all the planets and between, you know, uh, the clone wars and being Darth Vader, he, he gets to quite a few. Um, I will say, <laughs> I don't know if he gets to all of them, but he gets to quite a few of them. Um, so I, I think this scene packs in a lot of things. Uh, it really highlights that innocence of Anakin. And then it transitions to Qui-Gon conferring with Obi-Wan about, you know, the analysis of, of Anakin's blood and the Metachlorian count, which, uh, Metachlorians, I know, I know. But it's a way that the Jedi are able to quantify, you know, your potential connection to the Force um, and how you might be able to interact with it. And Anakin's potential is greater than any Jedi ever. Which is, you know, as Obi-Wan says, it's off the charts. Obi-Wan's in disbelief. Qui-Gon immediately thinks, is this the fulfillment of prophecy? Um, which is, you know, of course, something that he's looking for. Uh, and re- really starts to set things in motion for Anakin. It's this, this thing. At, Qui-Gon has a hunch, but it's this confirmation of that hunch that sets things in motion for Qui-Gon to get Anakin off planet. And the last thing I want to mention about this scene is Shmi hears the whole conversation. She knows because we see the end of the scene ends with Qui-Gon looking back into the hovel and Shmi is in the doorway listening. And she sort of like, you know, walks away at the end, but she's heard the whole conversation so she's starting to get hope that perhaps things might change for her son um, for the better. 
Um, and, and I really like this scene because it packs in so much in a very short amount of time. Uh, and it's really a key pivotal moment in Qui-Gon's goals on Tatooine. So. Yeah. I mean, I love this scene. I, I know I've talked about it a couple of times on the show over the years. Um, for that very same purpose, uh, it's it's really it really is that scene that solidifies um, Anakin's wistfulness, right? His mm. desire for something so much more. This is his tattooing twin sons, if you will. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's so important that you know Anakin simply longs for for freedom from his situation. Um, but also a longing for adventure. And mm-hmm. like you said, you know, the second part of the scene is really about uh, Qui-Gon starting to really get a sense of who Anakin is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the previous, you know, earlier that day, Shmi, con- you know, confesses to him that she had a virgin birth, um, which right. Qui-Gon's already got is like, oh my gosh, that sounds just like a prophecy. Uh, and then sends kind of this quantitative data to um, to Obi Wan to confirm that in fact his midi chlorians are off the charts. Uh, yeah, and and as you said, it, it, the the scene closes with Shmi looking at him. And I think what's actually really interesting to me is the the shot of Shmi looking at Qui Gon is when the music the music also transitions into this kind of ominous music as Darth Maul arrives on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I think that it m- works really well with starting that music while settled on Shmi because while she is certainly looking at Qui-Gon with a sense of hope that there could be something more for Anakin, there's also this sense of trepidation of like, oh my gosh, this is great. Anakin could finally have a future, but I probably won't be part of it. Right? Right, um, right. So yeah, I mean, what a what a great scene! No, it's fantastic. I, I love it. I love it. It's it's a quiet little magical moment that really is kind of the fulcrum uh, that the the plot of Phantom Menace swings on. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um. Well, t- transitioning into Attack of the Clones. Uh, my scene is one of the most derided scenes from non-prequel lovers, which is the I don't like sand scene. Uh, <laughs> I, I understand objectively why people don't like this, but the the sheer ignorance of not getting the point of this scene baffles me, right? Like people are like, oh, it's the dumbest line ever written. No, 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 no. I've seen a, I've, I've heard a lot dumber lines in lots of different movies than this. This scene is wildly important for establishing Anakin and Padme's relationship. The scene opens with Padme telling him, you know, this was, you know, that island out there. We used to swim there as kids and, you know, name the birds and blah, blah, blah. Like she's she's telling him this very intimate story about her past. She's opening up her history. She is revealing Mm -hmm. a part of herself. She's making herself vulnerable to Anakin in a very profound way. We have not seen this yet in the story with you know, um, Padme revealing parts of herself. She's always been a very guarded person. And yet in mm-hmm. this moment, she's confessing the truth to Anakin. And she's also, also really revealing just how much she loves where she comes from. And then, Anna, you know, she talks about how much she loves the sand, right? Like we <laughs> love laying on the beach, blah, blah, blah. And then you get Anakin blatantly just saying how disdainful he is of sand. 
And it makes perfect sense. This is somebody who grew up as an enslaved person on a desert planet. Mm -hmm. His experience of sand is one of torment and uh, control, right? So it's this really intimate scene for Padme. And it's also an equally intimate scene for Anakin where he confesses to her that, you know, while she loves where she came from, Anakin despises where he came from. It, right. it kind of establishes this central part of their characters. Um, Padme comes from a pr- place of privilege. Anakin does not. <laughs> um, it's very, very clear. And, you know, for people to be like, that's the dumbest line ever. It's like, I don't understand how much more in your face this scene could blatantly make it clear why this scene is important. You know, uh, it, it's just people choosing to be hateful for the sake of being hateful. <laughs> um, but the scene makes a lot of sense because it's about Anakin confessing to Padme uh, how much he resents where he comes from and mm-hmm. and how much he didn't have. Um, and just just thinking about how important that is to the dynamic of their relationship as they grow closer. Um, and this is something that uh, Mike Chen makes perfectly beautifully clear in his novel Brotherhood. Um, you know, when when we get those early scenes in the novel of Anakin and Padme having date nights together, right? We get yeah. further evidence of their their very different life experiences having impacts on who they are in relationship with one another. Um, so this scene to me is really important for for showcasing kind of those fundamental differences between these two characters. And also, it's a very important scene because they're both making themselves vulnerable to one another. Uh, yeah. That's that's also an incredibly important part of what's going on here. Um, so, yeah, you know, and and. You know, the whole I don't like sand stuff. It's also Anakin's pathetic attempt at flirting. <laughs> you know, yes, this is a young <laughs> this is a young man who, you know, was a very little boy when he was taken off to the Jedi Temple where, you know, relationships of that kind are strictly prohibited. So this is him also trying to while he's confessing something true about his experience, I think that switches into the, you know, not like here where everything is soft and smooth. <laughs> you know, it's. It's unlike Anakin. unlike my attempts at flirting. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's Anakin then pivoting to try to, to to use this moment as a point of, you know, oh, she just shared something intimate with me. I shared something intimate with her. Hey, maybe there's a spark here. So let me uh, let me see about that. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's why this scene to me is. You know, I, I think for prequel fans, it's certainly a very beloved scene and it's become more beloved over the years because of the people who mm-hmm. don't get its disdain. Um, and uh, but I but I do really think it's so important for establishing who these two characters are and and kind of one of their core fundamental differences that is going to make it very hard for them to be in a relationship outside of just the fact that they're lying and keeping a secret but there's also right. this fundamental life experience that is very different for both of them um, it doesn't mean that they're incompatible but it does make it more difficult right padme is padme is loving her experience of sand it's something uh you know it it, it, ins- it inspires memories of vacation and fun for anakin mm-hmm. it just it just brings up feelings of feeling crummy and somebody's property and you know, this stuff that just gets everywhere and you can't get it out. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, very different experiences and, and such an important scene. Yeah, absolutely. 
uh, I, you know, I don't have, you know, sand everywhere around me, but I, there are places that I can go here in Arizona where sand is definitely a problem and it does, it's coarse, rough, irritating, and it gets everywhere and it's just a pain to deal with. <laughs> so I sympathize with, with Anakin on that, even though I do love the desert, um, unlike Anakin. But I do like how you focused in at the beginning of this is that this, it really is a, you know, an, in, an intimate sharing of, of, you know, where they come from and how they feel about where they come from. You know, Padme obviously loves that she comes from Naboo and the experiences she's, that she's had growing up and, and she's sharing this love and this, these happy memories with Anakin in a very unguarded sort of way, you know, uh, which is the first time that she's really kind of let her guard down. Maybe ever in the movies, uh, but specifically with Anakin. Anakin has put his feelings towards her on his sleeve. Uh, he's not necessarily uh, shy about those. However, this is definitely the first time he's really intimate in the way about his past with her. You know, he's complained about Obi Wan, but you know, all. Everybody complains about their boss. You know, that's not, that's not a big, you know, thing, uh, or their parents. You know, everybody yeah. complains about their boss or their parents. Uh, that's not necessarily super intimate, but Anakin does in a gentle way. He doesn't want to like completely stomp on Padme's happy memories. Um, but he does say, I, I don't like sand because you know it's it's rough and trying to get everywhere but i don't like where i came from mm -hmm. i don't like tattooing it's it's awful um and and i think moving forward we see this um uh, more explicitly in a lot of the uh the novels and other material and stuff in the clone wars but we kind of get glimpses of it that because of that Padme does everything that she can to make her happy memories and her enjoyment of where she comes from home for Anakin. Hmm. Because then he doesn't have to, you know, because then he can share in that with her and he doesn't have to always be thinking about the terrible experiences he had growing up. Um, which I, I, that's just something like looking ahead in, into brotherhood. And she does sort of uh, bring in specific, you know, happy memories with like the food uh, in brotherhood, but that's, you know, that's centered around moments with his mother and things like that, which are, are happy, you know, little moments in a life that he doesn't really enjoy um, talking about, but she, is able to try and do everything that she can to bring him into her world in order to share that love of where she comes from with him. Um, I feel like that's something that she does uh, very deliberately. So. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, what is your scene from attack of the clones? We're going to go all the way to the end. And we've, we've talked about this scene a little bit um, in the past, uh, Focusing more on the end of this scene, but we're going to uh, the Jedi Council Chambers at the end of the movie where Obi-Wan, Mace Windu, and Yoda are talking about uh, what's just happened. Um, and of course, it ends with Yoda saying, you know, begun, Clone War has. But the beginning of the scene starts with 
Obi-Wan asking Mace Windu and Yoda about Count Dooku's declaration that the Senate is under the control of the Sith. And he says, it doesn't feel right. Of course, we know it, it is right. Um, but it's, you know, they're, they're questioning it. They're wondering if it's true. They're wondering how much of it could be true. Uh, but this surprising thing that I find in this scene is how quickly Dooku is dismissed by Yoda um, in this moment. Because, you know, obviously Dooku has gone, gone over to the dark side. Dooku has lies, deceit, creating mistrust are his ways now. Um, so Yoda doesn't necessarily discount the statements, but he sort of discounts where the statements are coming from because it is uh, the objective of the Sith to sow discord and mistrust. Which is what Dooku has done. Um, but he was also telling the truth. Um, so I just find it very interesting that, you know, here at the beginning of it all, they have potentially a key to ending it much quicker. But because they are so suspicious of the dark side and uh, wary of the Sith, they discount the statement or at least push it way out at arm's length um, so that it's not... It's only as the war continues and gets worse for the Jedi that they end up re-examining that. (laughs) And by then it's too late. Um, But it is very surprising to me how quickly, because at the beginning, you know, He's a political idealist, not a murderer. You know, you know, my lady, he was once a Jedi Knight. You couldn't assassinate anyone. It's not in his character. To lot is deceit creating mistrust are his ways now. They go, it's a very radical quick swing that the Jedi Council takes towards Dooku and anything that he says. Um, I just find that very, very interesting. Uh, and then, of course, Obi-Wan says, you know, without the clones, it would not have been a victory. And, of course, Yoda you know, ends with, it's not a victory. You know, what, this is just the beginning of a terrible, terrible thing. Um, but I do, I did want to just focus in on how surprising I think it is that the Jedi the, as a whole, and particularly the leaders of the council are very quick to discount the statements of Dooku. Now that they know he is joined the dark side in the Sith. Yeah, that's that's a really yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting uh, aspect of this scene to, to to kind of dial in on. I love that, Jason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what a great point of just the council is kind of just so binary. They're so black and white. You know, at the beginning of the movie, Dooku is yeah, like they understand that he's leading the separatist movement. However. They think he's doing it from kind of this idealistic political aspect, right? Like mm-hmm. while they believe him to be wrong, they feel his quest is noble. But now that it's been revealed that he's become a Sith, that he's fallen to the dark side. Nope. Everything he says is a lie. He's he is not to be trusted. He's evil. Right. Um, right. It, it, it just kind of proves the point 
of of Dooku. <laughs> you know, we talked a lot about this last week on our Dooku episode, um, and and even Qui Gon's own wariness about the state of the Jedi Council. Uh, it, it, it's it's this or it's that, and binary ways of thinking, both in the galaxy far, far away and in our own world. You know, they often pigeonhole us into it's either this or it's that. There's no room for middle ground, um, and that's. Yeah. I mean, right. We all know from our own experience that life is gray. It's never black or white. Um, and yeah, I mean, but I love how you've showcased just like in this one film, it starts one way and it ends completely different uh, because they learned this one thing about Dooku. So therefore, everything about him is untrue. Um, and what's yeah. so cool about this, too, is also feeding the fact that, uh, you know, this is this is something Star Wars fans love to talk about, how the Sith are always telling the truth, though. Right. The Sith actually don't really lie. Like Dooku was telling the truth. But as we talked about kind of last week, he knew that by telling Obi-Wan this truth, it could it would only have good effects for him. Either he doesn't believe him and just feeds that to the to the council and makes them more uncomfortable or he buys into it and joins him. Right. It's a win win for Dooku. Um, But yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting how the council is just so quick to dismiss him and. You know, thinking about it, that that's Yoda, though. It's Yoda mm-hmm. who's the one who's doing it. And thinking about the fact that Dooku was Yoda's student. And it can't, yeah. I, you know, this just kind of thought popped into my head right now in light of what you were saying, Jason, is you can't help but wonder if Yoda's kind of saying this from a place of being wounded, right? We always just assume yeah. Yoda is perfect and infallible, but. Yoda's as human as the next person, or whatever he is, right? But, uh, you know, <laughs> right. like he, he is. He's not an imperfect, or excuse me, he is not a perfect divine being. But no. I, it makes me almost wonder if Yoda's saying this almost from a place of feeling hurt. You know, when he when he rolls up into that hangar and goes blade to blade with Dooku and sees what Dooku has become. You know, when Dooku walked away, it wasn't that Yoda had to think about, oh my gosh, I trained a fallen Jedi who's now a Sith. It was just, oh, like this student of mine walked away from the Jedi. It wasn't the right path for him. But now he has to contend with the truth that Dooku is a Sith. And that was Yoda's student. So you can't help but wonder if some of this, you know, some of this lashing out at Dooku is almost a sense of uh, Yoda taking a little personally with how far Yoda or Dooku has fallen. You're probably right because he looks he looks wounded. He looks defeated mm. and uh, almost oppressed in this scene. You know, and obviously he he ends it right before he says, "Begotten the Clone War has." He says, "You know, the shroud of the dark side has fallen." You know, and throughout this movie, he and Mace have been talking about how you know difficult it is for for the Jedi to be able to see the Force and how their ability to use the Force is diminished and things like that uh, because of the rising dark side. And so all of this has sort of come to a head for Yoda in the person of his potentially greatest uh, student, you know, who walked away and has now become an agent of evil. Uh, And so, yeah, I definitely think I I hadn't thought of it that way before, but I'm glad that thought came to you in this uh, because I, yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that, that, a bit of this scene is Yoda just in pain about what's happened with Dooku. <laughs> little foreshadowing of what Obi-Wan's going to have to go through with mm. Anakin. Um, you know, it's Star Wars. It rhymes. And Carl, <laughs> we just found another one that I hadn't thought about. And I've been watching these movies forever, you know? 
They are a gift that keeps on giving, Jason. It it does. It does. And now I'm going to look at some of these these scenes uh, with that in mind going forward. And it's going to change a few things, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, interactions between Yoda and Dooku in the Clone Wars and stuff like that might have a, a little bit of extra uh, f- seasoning now. Just thanks to that insight. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> You're quite welcome. Thanks for thanks for picking out that moment in the, in the, the scene. Yeah, oh, it was great. Uh, well, uh, Revenge of the Sith, Carl. We're, we're wrapping up the uh, prequel trilogy. Yes. Um, and I, I will not lie. This is a scene I have talked about a few times before, but I don't care. Uh, it's, it's continues to be underappreciated. It is, of course... The scene that made me fall in love with balconies, Jason. It's the balcony scene <laughs> between Anakin and Padme. The you're so beautiful. It's only because I'm so in love. Um, you know, fun fact, this is a reshoot scene. This was this scene was not originally in the script or in the original shoot, but George felt that there was something missing between their kind of rocky reunion where she confesses to being pregnant to him having the nightmare. George wanted to have a moment of kind of solace and peace for the two Mm -hmm. of them. And that's what I love about this scene. Um, And forgive me for maybe being repetitive from past, past contemplations on the scene, but it really is one of the few moments in episode three that allows us to breathe and breathe in a sense of relief. Um, Mm -hmm. The scene also has one of my favorite statements of across the stars. It's played beautifully on the harp and and this scene is really about what is hoped for from these young lovers. You know, mm-hmm. they're out there on this balcony with the whole galaxy before them. And they're just kind of caught up in their dreams of what's to become of their lives together. They're, they're making plans for a future with a family and everything that that could possibly be. Um, and, and coming from a place where I've, I've been fortunate enough to have several lovely, lovely partners in my life where I've had that experience of just kind of standing out there under the stars or taking a stroll through through the city and just kind of dreaming out loud with somebody that I feel deeply in love with and deeply, deeply trusting in. That's what this scene is all about. Um, Padme and Anakin just sharing their dreams for a future together. And, and I think that that's so darn important because uh, this scene really establishes kind of what's at stake on a very personal level for both of them. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 not just about a cessation of the Clone Wars, but it's also about the freedom to to live beyond the cons- the constraints that they find themselves in. Right, the whole the whole anxiety of their relationship is they're not supposed to be doing it. Anakin's a Jedi; she's a senator. I don't think senators are prohibited from marriage, but they are certainly prohibited from marrying a Jedi. <laughs> um, and, you know, in this moment is just the freedom to almost imagine whatever you want to be and do that together. Uh, and I think that's what's so important about the scene is that this is really what brings Anakin and Padme together. Uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful scenes between the two of them. Because, uh, again, you know... I, I agree with some of the criticism of the prequel trilogy insofar as Anakin and Padme's relationship seems a little wooden and hollow. That's 
Sure, it does. Absolutely. There are, there are moments of that. But I think this is one of the most intensely beautiful scenes between them because, again, if you've ever had a partner, you've had this experience of dreaming together and, and thinking about life beyond the present moment. And more importantly, thinking about life beyond kind of the struggles of the present moment. You know, this is two young people in the midst of a war still finding a place for peace and solace and and thinking that there could be more for them out there than than the constraints they find themselves in. Um and actually Jason real quick, I'm going to loop it back to the moment you talked about from Phantom Menace, right? It's this is a young enslaved boy dreaming about traveling among the stars, right? In that circumstance, mm-hmm. Anakin has no inclination whatsoever that he could potentially be free. Um, and yet it doesn't stop him from dreaming in the presence of somebody he deeply trusts. This is mm-hmm. kind of a similar thing. This is him looking out there looking at this person that he loves deeply and understanding that as long as they're together, nothing can prevent them from this beautiful life that they can dream up. Um, and I think that that's so important and, and that's, what's at stake in revenge of the Sith. It's, it's, you know, yes, there's all these big political galactic stakes, but also in this very personal way, um, what's at stake here is the innocence of young love. Uh, and, and Mm -hmm. I love this scene so much. It's, it's a great scene. And yes, we, we have talked about it before, meaning Carl has brought it up many times before. Um, <laughs> um, You're not wrong. But I, do, but I do think it's a good one to bring up in the, the context of this topic because I, I don't think too many people talk about it that much. You know, Revenge of the Sith, conversations about Revenge of the Sith really get sort of overshadowed with Anakin's fall, Anakin's fall, Anakin's fall. And we, we you know, obviously that is the, the crux of the the movie – but it's made more tragic by the fact that we get this moment to breathe, this moment of calm, this moment of of two of a young husband and wife dreaming about their future in light of the fact that they have a baby on the way. You know, uh, it's it's something very special. It changes the dynamic of things. And yet they're still being really cheesy and silly together, uh, even though they're expressing deep feelings. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful little scene. Um, and it is crucially important, not only, you know, just to the pacing overall of the movie, but because it, it still gives us the, the look into Anakin that there is that innocence to him still, which is what makes his fall even more tragic. Because as part of what makes him fall is the corruption of that innocence. Um, but like, I love how you tied it back into my Phantom Menace moment because it really is sort of the echo of that innocence, the echo of that dreaming of that, you know, looking to the future for, you know, excitement or, or, uh, good things. Um, and the, the pure confidence in the idea that it's going to happen because Anakin never dreams just to dream. He dreams because he's going to make that happen. Um, and, and in this moment we see the innocence of, of Anakin just wanting to have a life with Padme and a family with her. And that's the most important thing to him. And of course this nightmare happens and that shakes everything. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But, you know, I love this scene. I love the fact that you brought it up again. And it, it really is important, uh, it, not only to the pacing of the movie itself, but to the story. It is essential, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I, you've made me appreciate this scene so much that I I don't mind talking about it anytime you want to bring it up. <laughs> um, well, real quick, I'm glad you mentioned though too, that it does right. Then it immediately bumps into his nightmare scene, which again, like I said, this, this balcony scene was a post-production thing. And I think it's, it's so important because again, it's if, if we just go right then into the nightmare scene, it's nothing but an, an, anxious Anakin the whole time, but we need this breathing right. point to show that the reason that dream is so torturous to him. Yes. It's because it's similar to what he dreamt about his mother. And yes, it's about losing his, his, his beloved Padme, but bumped up right against this really beautiful scene of innocence and longing and dreaming. It makes it even more impactful because this is, this is the other side of that coin. This is what they're hoping for. And then he's tortured with this nightmare. Um, so yeah, the nightmare I, threatens not only to take Padme from him, but to take the whole dream from him. Yes, exactly. To take happiness from him. Exactly. Yes. So glad yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, okay. but what is your revenge of the Sith moment? My revenge of the Sith moment. It's a short scene. Um, Obi-Wan has just given Anakin his unofficial assignment from the Jedi council. And then he gets on a ship with Yoda and Mace Windu to escort Yoda um, on his departure to, uh, to not Camino, uh, Kashyyyk, uh, because he's going to, you know, because he has good relations with the Wookiees. Um, But uh, they have a conversation about all of this. Uh, It starts off, obviously, with um, Obi-Wan talking about the fact that Anakin did not take his assignment well, and Mace Windu saying, you know, I don't think the boy can handle it. I don't trust him. He's right not to trust, you know, because Palpatine has been working Anakin. Uh, I'm not saying it's, you know, he's nice about it because he's not. Um, but he's right to be a little wary, um, which is, you know, weird thing to say sometimes because obviously Mace and Anakin do not get along. Um, we've, we've talked about many times. Um, but the the rebuttal that obi-wan gives is well is he not the chosen one is he not said to destroy the sith and bring balance to the force this is this is very interesting because uh you know and, and mace's response is so the prophecy says we bring the prophecy back into things um and as we we learn from uh you know uh, master and apprentice and dooku jedi lost the prophecies aren't really necessarily looked upon with a lot of confidence or a lot of acceptance. They're sort of like, yeah, that's interesting. Don't worry about it. That's sort of the attitude of the Jedi, especially, you know, in, in the period preceding the prequels, uh, when Dooku and Qui-Gon and, and the like are sort of learning about them. Um, so we kind of bring this back in, and Mace obviously is not a believer in prophecy. He, he doesn't really hold, put much stock in it whatsoever. Yoda is considering it, but thinks that it might be misunderstood or misread. 
He's not sure about it. He's he he's he doesn't discount it. There's probably something to it, but he doesn't know what it is. Obi-Wan believes it. Obi-Wan believes it not only because, you know, he brings it up as a defense for Anakin, um, but because he ends this scene by by saying uh, that Anakin won't let him down. He never has. And and I find that to be such an interesting thing. Obi-Wan, not only is he bought into the prophecy of the Chosen One as told to him by, by Qui-Gon, which is interesting considering the where he was in the Phantom Menace and how he thought of Anakin as a, yet another pathetic life form um, at the beginning. But he also now has complete faith in Anakin and in who he is as a Jedi, as a person. And it it's just a tragedy because he doesn't really tell Anakin that. Hmm. He believes it. But he doesn't really tell Anakin that. And if he did, Anakin might have confided in Obi-Wan rather than Palpatine on some of these things. Um, but, you know, we, we go, you know, Obviously, we, we see that they're brothers. They, you know, they're very much brothers at the beginning of the movie. And this is reinforced by the fact in this scene that Obi-Wan says that he believes in Anakin because he's never let him down and he never will. And then the tragedy of all tragedies happens by the end of the movie. And it's this statement that makes Obi-Wan's, you know, speech uh you know at the top of the rise on mustafar uh as he's pouring his heart out to anakin so that you would destroy the sith not join them you know all of that makes that much more heartbreaking for obi-wan because he believed and anakin and now he doesn't trust his own beliefs because anakin has fallen and has betrayed everything so yeah I love that you picked this scene because this is a scene we've never really talked about extensively. Um, and as you noted, there's just so much good stuff going on in here from Mace's doubt in, in Obi and Anakin to Obi-Wan's faith in Anakin to Yoda's wariness about the prophecy. You know, we kind of have three things going on in this, in this little scene that are all very important. Want to highlight just because any plug I can get, I'll take it to the Matthew Stover Revenge of the Sith novel. The scene's even better in the novel um, <laughs> because it's ultimately Obi-Wan saying to Mace and Yoda, like, listen, you don't get it. Anakin's loyal to people, not ideals, not abstract ideas like justice and peace. Like he cares about people. Y'all don't get it. That's why I love Anakin is because I kind of feel the same way, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like self-righteousness and in, in empty causes. Don't mean much if there's no people flushing them out. Um, but that said, you know, Mace is further leaning into his own disdain for Anakin. Uh, I mean, Mace sucks. He is one of the biggest problems in the Jedi Council. Um, uh, there's really no way around it. Like, he sucks. He's the worst. <laughs> uh, he, he is very, very, very responsible for what happens to Anakin. Uh, and I think that's something we don't talk enough about, to be honest. Like, I know I like to give crap to Mace on occasion, but I think that's 
actually quite true is Mace Windu is one of the most responsible members of the Jedi for its own fall. Um, his, his, it's funny because like, just like Anakin, he's so obsessed with holding on to something that he lets it burn. Um, but all that aside, uh, this scene is important <laughs> because, you know, it, it again highlights Mace's distrust of Anakin. But I think like you said, what's also really important and beautiful for Obi-Wan in this scene is that Obi-Wan's always going to bat for Anakin and he believes mm-hmm that Anakin is in fact the chosen one. And we've seen, we've seen this particular journey for Obi-Wan charted across a couple of the novels, um, particularly in kind of the epilogue of the master and apprentice novel by Claudia Gray. And also in brotherhood by Mike Chen, you know, it's, we get to see kind of Obi-Wan's inner, inner kind of workings of how he comes to terms with choosing to have faith in what Qui-Gon had faith in, right? Because I think mm-hmm. it, in Phantom Menace, I don't think Obi-Wan really cares or believes it. But by the end of the story, uh, by agreeing to take Anakin on, he also agrees to taking on Qui-Gon's faith in Anakin and faith in the fact right. that he is the chosen one. Um, so I think that's a really telling part is that Obi-Wan has chosen to believe that Anakin is this chosen one of prophecy. And then it's Yoda who kind of throws everything into the kind of the, the bingo scrambler by saying, who knows, maybe that was a misread prophecy. And I, you know, my, my counter almost to Yoda is, was it misread or did you just have too narrow an understanding of it? Right. Cause I think, you know, the spirit of the prophecy is in fact true. Anakin is the chosen one. He does bring balance to the force, but it is certainly not in any way they would have anticipated or assumed. No. Um, no. You know, Anakin works out that destiny in a very prolonged, torturous way, but he still fulfills mm-hmm. it. Um, yes. But yeah, I mean, in that moment, it's, 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 and again, I'm going to kind of do what I did when you talked about Yoda's moment in Attack of the Clones. It's a it's a very defeated Yoda. It's a Yoda coming off of three years of warfare. It's a very wary Yoda who is unsure of anything. And again, I think that's a yeah. really important thing to note when we're talking about Yoda. Because once again, I think uh, the Jedi in general, Star Wars fandom um, in, in, a, in a meta way, we always just kind of see Yoda as this perfect being. Um while forgetting that he is just as fallible as the next person. Uh, and I think this kind of similar to the, the other scene you mentioned in attack of the clones, Jason, it's a very world weary Yoda, you know, Mm -hmm. he's been in the midst of this war and now kind of everything is called into question. And just think kind of how scary that is that nothing seems to be solidly true for these three. Well, for two of these three characters, that's what's interesting. Mace and Yoda both seem to have very, very shaky faith. Obi-Wan is the only one in this moment who kind of has, he's clinging to though, this sensibility that no, 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 no. Anakin is the chosen one. I choose to believe it. Yeah. Which makes it all the more tragic when Anakin falls because that shatters Obi-Wan. Absolutely. That shatters Obi-Wan, which of course, you know, it takes 10 years for him to sort of pick up the pieces from that as we see in, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, so it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, it takes a long time for Obi-Wan to really kind of process. And he doesn't, I don't think ever fully get over this, mm-hmm. the, this, you know, uh, d- the destruction of his faith yeah. in this way. 
Um, but yes, in, in terms of Yoda, I, I, I feel like the, the sense that we get of Yoda, especially by, you know, through the Clone Wars TV show and everything is at this point in the war, Yoda doesn't see a way out of it for the Jedi. Yoda, Yoda, I think is convinced by this point that the war is going to end horribly for the Jedi. And, uh, there's nothing any of them can do about it. Um, I really kind of get that, that sense. And which means, of course, is why he's questioning everything. And of course, it, it takes sort of the clarity that comes, you know, after the movie ends for Yoda to get to the place where we meet him in the, uh, Empire Strikes Back. It, it takes clarity and understanding and, you know, soul searching and meditation for him to make sense of everything and figure out how to become the the wise great Jedi master we get in Empire Strikes Back. Um, to say that he isn't wise or great in the prequels, but he still has much, you know, he still has blind spots and he still has things that he needs to learn. Like we all do, you know, mm-hmm. we never stop learning. Um, and it, if we do, then that's a problem. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, there, there's a lot going on in this scene, and I felt like it it needed to be highlighted because I don't I don't see a lot of people talking about it. And obviously, I don't think we've talked about it that much at all either, um, except maybe in passing. So I want to make sure we highlighted this. Yeah, I'm so glad you did. It's it is such a great scene. And honestly, Jason, as you were as you were kind of bringing it up, I just thought to myself, what would make a great future episode is to actually just look at the prequel trilogy on screen and talk about the scenes where they actually talk about the prophecy. <laughs> so, cause it's obviously mentioned across all three films. So it is, uh, so that'd be a it fun is. thing to look and, at and, and how it evolves and, and what it might mean. So I think you just, I, I did note, I did notice that there were definitely, uh, I had a lot of prophecy moments in, in yeah, my, <laughs> in my picks this time. Yeah. So I love it. that might be, that might be a good one to talk about the, the discussions of, the chosen one prophecy in the films. I like that. I think we should do that. Me too. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so there you go, folks. There are some of our, our favorite underappreciated moments across the prequels. Um, As always, we welcome some of yours. Uh, You know, we always like to hear what other folks are thinking when we, when we do shows like this. Absolutely. You know, there's so many, there's so many options out there and, you know, I debated on a couple of things. And so I'm very curious to see if anybody, had other ideas or things like that out there. Cause that, that would be really cool to think of about. Um, but Carl, if people want to weigh in on their thoughts on, on our picks or, or give us their uh, underappreciated prequel trilogy moments, where can people reach us? Uh, we are on Instagram at the Wampas Lair. You can follow us on Twitter at Wampas Lair or shoot us an email at Wampas Lair podcast at gmail.com. Excellent. And any final thoughts before we close out this episode? Uh, this episode was uh, a prophecy not misread. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This was the chosen episode for you to listen to right now. Uh, thank you, everyone, so much for listening to this episode of the Wampus Lair Pro- Podcast. This has been episode number 534, Underappreciated Prequel Trilogy Moments. For Carl, I'm Jason. We'll see you next time here in the Wampus Lair. <laughs>